reading, writing, speaking, listening, and oh yeah, did I mention science instruction? It's coming up on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. And welcome to this episode of the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I am your host, Jake Downs. I am a PhD graduate, an instructional coach with a local school district, and someone who just wants to know a lot more about reading. And it is good to be back. Uh, We can address the elephant in the room here in that, what I said a second ago, I am a PhD graduate. So I was fortunate enough this last weekend to be able to uh, graduate with a doctor in curriculum instruction and a specialization in literacy and leadership from Utah State University. And uh, with the extra time on my hands, I've been able to put more time back into this podcast. And so the aim is that the these shows will be coming out a lot more regularly than they have been in the past. So for those of you that have been following the podcast since the very beginning, or those of you that have been joining the show recently, Uh, Either way, thank you very much for joining the show. I appreciate your support. I applaud your diligence in trying to support the young readers who are in your care. I'm very excited for today's episode. In this episode, I interview Dr. Sarah K. Clark, who is a professor in the Department of Teacher Education at Brigham Young University. Over the last several years, she's conducted a series of studies where she has integrated Uh, literacy with science instruction in uh, first and second grade students. I think her work is very sharp. I think it's very interesting with a lot of practical implications for the classroom. So I think you'll have a lot of great takeaways. It personally was a fantastic conversation uh, for me to have. Uh, Dr. Clark was actually an undergraduate professor of mine. My first literacy class uh, was from, uh, I take that back, my second literacy class during my undergraduate was with uh, Dr. Clark. And uh, she actually played a, a pivotal role in, in helping me get applied and, and be thinking about uh, doing a doctoral program. So I, I, I owe her quite a lot. She's done a lot for me in getting me rolling on my literacy journey. So uh, you'll see, as I know in the show, that she has a very pragmatic view where she is really trying to ground her instruction in what works with teachers and being able to partner with teachers to figure out how to bridge research into practice, uh, which is very much what we're trying to do on the podcast. So she is a great fit. So without further ado, I bring you Dr. Sarah K. Clark. And after the show, make sure to stick around for my two cents on the topic. Dr. Sarah Clark, welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Thank you. It's so nice to be with you. Thank you very much for being willing to uh, interview on the show. So in this episode, we're talking today about several research studies you did with elementary age students on uh, integrating some writing and some science instruction. So I'm curious, what first got you interested in researching writing integration uh, to integrate writing instruction with uh, science instruction? Yeah, so all of my research usually stems from questions that 
that teachers are asking me. And I had a group of teachers um, who reached out to me and just said, we're supposed to be teaching writing and we're supposed to be teaching science and we don't do either of them. And um, so I kind of started reading and playing around with things and talking some more with them. Um, and I really um, just got super excited about the possibilities and the potential um, with both of these subjects. And so that's really where it started. And then we ended up creating and designing projects. We started, you know, in Northern Utah in school districts and we worked our way all the way through the state to the very South of Utah and worked with teachers in different projects um, on, centered on the same topic of merging that science and literacy instruction. That's wonderful. So, so as elementary teachers, we, we have core standards that we align our instruction with. And something I really appreciated when I've been looking through your, your series of studies is you do a really careful job and a really great job of orienting and framing your research within um, the NGSS and the, the Common Core State Standards. So um, can, you, can you outline some of the ways that why you thought that was important? And then how do you see the next generation science standards and the Common Core State Standards? How do you see those working together well? Yeah, so um, first of all, the first thing that I did when we created the first project was I partnered with some science professors. Um, one was a life science professor at Utah State University and another one was in science education. I knew I needed that expertise to um, help me carry out these projects. And we received some grant funding from the, from the state. And so what we started doing is they were well-versed in the next generation science standards and the common core standards were you know, just fairly new, still coming out. Teachers were trying to get familiar with what they were all about. And I, I'll be honest, I hadn't really spent much time in the NGSS um, standards very much at all. And so I started, I was familiar with the common core. And so I started reading that and I was like, oh my goodness, there's so much overlap. And that's really where the excitement got started. If you take a look at the next generation science standards, um, they are explicitly tying it to literacy and math for that matter, but the, it is not an isolated um, set of standards. And then we turn around and we do an isolated set of literacy. So that's something I really appreciated about the next generation science standards is really modeling what it looks like to bring these all together. And then when I was looking at it from the perspective of the um, common core state standards for writing, I started looking through them and realizing that the science topics and ideas and concepts could be easily brought into what we were writing and reading and talking and listening to each other about. So that was kind of just playing around with the standards in both collections really um, provided the, the framework for how we would design these studies. So can you help give us an understanding of what uh, like a first or second grader, what, what standards for the next generation science centers and the common core state standards um, what might be required of them and, and how those you know, would overlap as you see it. Right, so the NGSS requires that they're doing investigations, that they're asking questions, that they're looking for patterns. I mean, it's really engaging them as scientists and they're, they're given um, certainly topics that they cover, but there are also cross-cutting concepts that they're expecting that they'll keep taking with them across those topics and across those grade levels. And then when you take a look at the, um, the writing standards as part of the language arts from the Common Core, there are three main types of writing that they're expecting students to do. And those are the opinion pieces, the informative explanatory text, and then also the narratives. And so when you look at those, it's fascinating as well, because with the Common Core, it really merges them and carries over by grade level. So 
that was one thing that we started talking with teachers about when we were looking at the NGSS and the CCS as that it doesn't matter what grade level you're teaching. It's very easy to differentiate by simply shifting and changing what we're expecting students to do. So I always encourage my students and the teachers I work with, please print them out across grade level. Don't think in second grade, we only do this or in third grade, we only do this. And just starting to look at them that way, maybe from a uh, you know, the a much bigger picture or a much bigger perspective, we started to see so many connections. And the fact that in the science standards, we're looking for patterns, we're learning vocabulary, we're looking for um, ways of thinking, those are the same things that we want to happen in our literacy instruction as well. And so I really saw them as reinforcing each other. Yeah, I see the Common Core State Standards as the, the anchor standards as, as a knowledge building process. And so obviously that we, we, we build knowledge a lot in teaching, right? That we want to build science knowledge and math knowledge. And so there's certainly, you know, room across the board there where there is a lot of overlap. Um, I, I think what you were just mentioning um, about the NGSS standards, helping kids see what it's like to be, or, you know, being able to think like a scientist, that brings up this uh, topic of disciplinary literacy, which is something you uh, emphasize in these, in these publications. And, and I think it's a really it's a, it's a term that's really vogue right now. Um, can you delineate a little bit how you see that term disciplinary literacy and, and why it might matter for the reading teacher? Yeah, it matters so much. And I um, had not been familiar with it before I started playing around with these projects either. And disciplinary literacy is really a theoretical framework, a way of thinking about how we instruct students. And I think a common way to think about it would be um, disciplinary literacy centers on, I like to think of it as the how and the why that teachers develop the practices for children to read, write, speak, listen. It's why they're doing it. Whereas content area reading, we focus on the what, we focus on the subject. And what ends up happening with content area reading, which has been um, around for quite a while, what we focus on are comprehension strategies to help students um, interpret and understand texts that they're reading. And Shanahan did a really nice job of explaining the difference between disciplinary literacy and content area literacy in that um, the content area literacy is really about topics and ideas. And disciplinary literacy, um, the work of Elizabeth, Elizabeth Moge, um, she really talked about the need to think of students as scientists. So if I am a, if I, if I'm teaching in an elementary classroom, for example, I'm not just teaching clouds or weather. I'm thinking in a much bigger picture and I'm saying, how do um, scientists discuss with each other about weather patterns or, you know, what, what happens when certain clouds show up in the sky? And so Disciplinary literacy is teaching students to behave within the confines or the patterns or structures of a discipline. And one of the things that I ran across, and um, I can share this with you for the show notes later, but um, Annenberg uh, Foundation does a lot of professional development and they have a whole series on disciplinary literacy and it's centered on middle school and high school. And so when I started reading about disciplinary literacy and kind of um, taking a look at it, Wright and Gottwalls did some work uh, with kindergarten students in disciplinary literacy, and it really increased their vocabulary. And I just kind of looked at that and I thought, wait a second, 
is it for the older kids or is it for the younger kids? And Shanahan and some of the others were saying, no, it really should start showing up in elementary school, but I wasn't seeing a whole lot of research. There were very limited studies um, that centered on those younger grades. And so that's why our projects really looked at kindergarten through second grade. Some of them, um, which we knew was, you know, kind of out of the box a little bit because I think we feel really confident and comfortable with the idea that middle school and high school students should be doing that and could be doing that. But some of these researchers kept saying that if we start in these younger grades, then they're really building those skills and understandings that they'll need in order to incorporate disciplinary literacy as they get into the older grades. I think that's a fantastic description. Uh, some of the research I've been fortunate enough to participate in was we, we looked at um, how the, the purpose of what we read really frames everything from the uptake of print to the, you know, the building of a, a situation model, understanding what's going on in the text. And you know, we, we, we approach an Instagram post a lot different than we, we approach a textbook, right? So the, the purpose for why we read really matters a lot with how we build knowledge. And, and perhaps I, I see disciplinary literacy being that really on a, on a macro scale of what does, how does a scientist approach a text? How does a, you know, how does a social researcher approach a text, a mathematician? And I, I think that's really a current topic for you all to, to put in with, you know, first and second grade students. So there's, there's one more piece we need to put on the board here. We've got um, integrating science and, and writing. We've got the NGSS and the Common Core State Standards. We've talked about disciplinary literacy. The last major piece to play it, put on the board is text structure, which is one of my more recent favorite things to talk about. So can you describe the importance of text structure with writing and why you felt that was important to include with disciplinary literacy and integrating uh, writing with, with science instruction? Okay, so I started by reading Bonnie Meyer's work on text structure, and there are a lot of researchers that have used her foundation to build upon when it comes to reading comprehension. And so the more I was reading it and some of the work I did with colleagues at Utah State University, we played around a lot with text structure and realized if you look at the research on reading comprehension, if you teach students text structure, how the author structures the information, their comprehension increases. After study, after study, after study, they kept finding that. And so I thought to myself, when we were designing these integrated science and, and literacy units, we had to focus on text structure as well because our emphasis was the informative explanatory text. And time and again, we would see authors using text structure in order to, um, frame or organize the information that they were sharing. And if I could take it just a step further, it wasn't just text structure, but it was also the signal words that authors were using. So if we helped students become familiar with ways that they could talk about these ideas they were learning, then they did it much easier than if without signal words. Signal words actually help them organize their information better. And so when we talk about the idea that these were integrated science and writing units, they were actually science and literacy. So we spent lots of time reading, lots of time talking, lots of time listening to each other, listening to ideas and lots of time writing. And I really, one thing that I've learned over and over in these various projects has been, I can't just teach writing. 
I can't just teach reading. I have to be incorporating all four of those. So even though that's not one of the things um, that maybe bubbles up as we read through these, that is something that really was um, important for me. And I kept realizing with the teachers, if we think about it, listening and reading are input. Speaking and writing are output. So the more I can give my students an opportunity to do all four of those, I'm going to increase their literacy skills. And the other thing to keep in mind is that, for example, if we say that speaking is an output, then that becomes the rough draft of their writing. And with these little guys, that's what we saw over and over. We constantly had them do their rough drafts speaking first before we ever had them do their rough draft writing. So it's just these ways of thinking about all of these tools that we have available to us. I kind of picture this toolbox. And if we're only pulling out the writing and the science tool, then we're really missing the bigger picture. And so that's why I always, I lean, I, it is writing instruction, but I really am leaning on all four of those um, literacy tools in order to really make a full unit. So yeah, text structure and definitely um, signal words were also key components uh, within those literacy tools that we were using. So the four you're saying is the language, science, reading, and writing. The four, I would, yeah, I would, I would even add speaking and listening speaking to that. Speaking and listening, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. The, these little guys, they were talking a ton. <laughs> and they could talk better than they can write in many situations. And so the more we were having them speak about their ideas, the better they were able to write. About their so it's almost, almost a scaffold, right? For them to be able to, if they yeah. can speak it first, yes. then they can take that extra step to, for the transcription, which, which is a little bit harder. That's a little bit more cognitively demanding than just speaking. Yeah. That's Wonderful. exactly right. Could I add one more thing that was a really big part of it? And I don't know if people would pick up on it as they read it, but mentor texts. Um, you, you just can't teach children to write informative explanatory texts without looking at models. And mentor texts were a huge part. Um, that to me, that was really the, the science portion of the instruction really helped build their background knowledge and their understanding around it. And the mentor texts and the text structure and the signal words were, okay, so how are we going to actually put this into writing? And so when I think about the science, it, you know, the disciplinary literacy was really important. And then when we looked about at the writing, it really was the literacy tools, the text structure, the mentor texts, and the signal words that we noticed these authors in the mentor texts were using. So we really emphasize that in the instruction as well. Wonderful. Um, I'm glad that you added that component in because we, we need models to mimic in order to learn, right? So, so now that we, we've, we've sort of gone over all the background for it, just briefly explain the, 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 the different studies you've been working on um, in general lately, and then we can go more into the, the findings and discussion afterward. I think I'll talk about one study and then because the way that they were structured was very similar. And then I could talk maybe just a little bit differently about each of the studies because the findings were slightly different and we really wanted to replicate it with different um, settings and different um, uh, grade levels and things like that. And we also had, you know, each study had a little something different that we were focusing on. So let me just give the background for one of the studies that I did. What we started off with, I have to preface this by saying, 
Utah hadn't quite shifted to the NGSS when we did these studies. So we were trying to walk this fine line because we knew we were speaking to a national audience, but then we were using science standards that were specific to Utah. And so the two uh, topics that we focused on first in this particular study that I'm describing, um, we looked at living and non-living things. And that does show up in NGSS. It just shows up in different grade levels. And then the other one that we did was the life cycle of a plant. And those, we, those were centered specifically within the Utah core second grade standards. And um, so we were, we were doing a little bit of finessing, um, taking certain things and getting teacher buy-in to teach something that maybe wasn't part of their instruction. And so then we had to find ways to, to help it fit into what they were teaching as well. So with those topics, one thing with disciplinary literacy that I think is really important to remember. And so we had to think long and hard about this. I'm just gonna start off with this example. One of my colleagues, one of my science colleagues explained this. This was Dr. Smith. Um, she explained that oftentimes elementary teachers will teach a science topic, which would be more like content area reading. So we're gonna learn about clouds. So I'm gonna read a bunch of books about clouds and we're gonna do all of these things we're gonna make clouds out of cotton balls and I'm gonna have my kids go outside and look at clouds and they're gonna write poems about clouds. And if you think about it, no scientist does that. They're not out there you know, writing poetry. And so when we were designing these units, we really had to think, what is it that a scientist that's exploring living and non-living things, what are they doing? And really observation becomes really important. And so there was a dead squirrel on the playground, which really generated a lot of the work that we started doing. And um, we had a lot of conversations in class about it. The teacher brought it up and actually there were multiple teachers uh, brought up this conversation and that kind of spurred us into the living and non-living things. You know, how were they similar? How were they different? And the whole focus at the beginning of the instruction was about just exploring these ideas and encouraging them to think and write like a scientist would about this. What kinds of questions? I don't, I didn't want them to just go out and get information. I wanted them to be generating questions and say, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense or, you know. And so for the, over the course of a few weeks, they did quite a few activities related to science. And every one of those activities had some sort of literacy component. Sometimes it was listening and speaking. Sometimes it was writing only. Sometimes it was reading. Um, we had one day where I had them actually, these are second graders. I had them actually, I gave them each a, a pad of sticky notes and I said, write down notes as you're reading this so that they would not just focus on the reading. And we had kids that had sticky notes lined up all the way across the counter in the back because they were writing like one or two words on there of what they were learning. So just the whole idea was to infuse them with the science concepts and then teaching them how to use the tools that they have already of speaking, listening, reading, and writing. And then what we did is we moved from there into modeling what other scientists, we were reading a lot of the books, other scientists had talked about this topic. How did they talk about it? And that's how we started merging and bringing in the whole concept of um, text structures, signal words. We took, you know, made charts and things of the kids that were noticing words that were um, indicating transition within text, things like that. So it just was slowly building to a point where by the time we were done, we had them write about living and non-living things. And then also about the life cycle of a plant. And because of all of this information, they were really able to do it 
quite nicely. Um, I could share some of the results. I'm gonna just share some of them. We created a rubric based off of the state writing rubrics. We wanted it to match the informative explanatory text rubric. And so we used that and then in added some things into it so that we could really hone in on some of those skills. And remember, we're just looking at the writing here, but there were other skills that were developing as well. In the study that I'm describing right now, the increase of signal words was pretty, uh, well, it was statistically significant from pre to post. And then the amount of science facts and definitions exploded from their pre to post, which you would expect when they're exposed to, you know, three weeks worth of learning about this topic that they really become experts at it. And then also the length of writing samples was statistically significant. The length of the writing sample has been shown in a lot of studies at these young grades that that is an indication that their writing is developing. That's not to say um, that there are some kids that didn't increase their length of text. And those tended to be more advanced writers. They didn't need as many words to actually share what they were sharing. Now, some of the differences that um, we noted, like for example, punctuation, the, in one of the studies, ending punctuation was statistically significant as far as the increase in use of that, um, but not capitalization, not an introductory sentence, which is required for second grade and not a concluding sentence. And so that, and some of these were the same across all three studies that you've pulled up. Um, but for me, what's interesting is like, what is it in our instruction that's not attending to those things? And we started realizing we tend to focus on certain things over others. Um, so that's something we wanna play around with and say, how can we incorporate that introductory sentence? How can we incorporate that um, concluding sentence? But it sounds like you got the, I mean, the big fish we wanna catch where they were, they were building content knowledge they were able to use the signal words, which is a, a proxy of their understanding of, of text structure and that they'd be able to replicate that in other texts or recognize in other texts that they read um, and that they were able to provide richer content either whether it was, was longer or, or the same length, but just um, you know, more, more rich. So that's wonderful. So in, in going through this research process, did anything specifically surprise you? This is the first thing that popped into my head and maybe it's not a surprise. It was actually a confirmation of something that I knew, but it surprised me when it showed up in the study. So earlier I mentioned that I had done a content analysis with Dr. Reitzel and Dr. Jones. And in there, we noted that we looked at thousands of books that were written for children um, that used the five different text structures that Meyer has identified. And what was really interesting is that one of the weaknesses and limitations that we noted in these informative explanatory texts is that it, they were not consistent in using an introduction or a concluding sentence, okay? And so to me, it was surprising and yet familiar to see that didn't show up in our research either. And so one of the things that we encouraged authors to do is don't forget these things. You know, they sometimes they just jump right into it or something that we also noted in that study years ago was that they would mix structures, which is harder for the younger kids instead of keeping them separate and distinct. And so in a way it was surprising, but then I thought, hey, you knew this, you knew this was already a problem. And so when you're using these mentor texts that are available, on the topic of say living and non-living themes, 
in hindsight, we probably should have added a sticky note that included an introduction and a conclusion if that was something that we really wanted to see in their student writing. Did you receive any feedback from teachers on this on this project, whether formal or informal? Yeah, so one of the studies that we haven't written up yet, this is actually, I believe there are three studies um, that you, you mentioned. We have another one that's coming out. And then I've also worked with three graduate students on spinoffs of this same study. One we've done with English learners to try and help them um, with their opinion writing and just finding techniques that might be helpful for um, emerging bilinguals and how this might apply in that setting. And so we've talked a lot with teachers about um, science vocabulary, uh, text structure, signal words, all of those things, you know, just they're really wanting ideas for how they can help someone that really has a strength of another language. And then they're bringing this other, um, this academic language into their uh, original language as well, or their primary language as well as the secondary English language. So that's something that we're hearing a lot from teachers. And so I intentionally worked with a group to do that. And then something else that one of the studies that we did was actually uh, interviewing the teachers and walking through this whole process with them. And in one of the interviews, and, and this is going back to that original study I described related to living and non-living things and then the life cycle of plants. So for like multiple weeks, they are planting these seeds, they're growing them, they're doing all these activities and they're talking about how excited the kids are. And they're, you know, in the interviews, they described about how it just really brought this energy and this zest to the classroom. And, you know, she's going through and she's this one particular teacher I'm thinking of, and she's describing all of these really beneficial things going on in her classroom. And then she said to me, you know, and I, we went and interviewed her throughout the process. And then we waited a couple months to come back and interview her. And at that point, she said, you know, then I moved into, um, we were studying rocks. And she said, and I wanted them to write about the rocks. And then she paused and she said, oh, I should have taught them together. And I, and I thought, yeah, it's so, we are so programmed in our patterns and behavior of how we teach. And so even though she'd been so gracious to let us come in her classroom, in her own instruction, it still wasn't filtering in, right? She was using our curriculum and things like that. And it just really taught me empathy for how we are still learning as teachers, how to do this. And I don't know, she just kind of chuckled at herself and I laughed too, because I thought, ah, oh, this is not just quick and easy, black and white. Now we do this from now on. Um, and so I think that's something that I'm learning is how do we support the teacher? How do we help them? So they're not having to create all of this from scratch. And what ended up happening in, the, in that particular school is she asked if we could create some integrated literacy instruction for her social studies as well. And so we put together lessons that would help her do it that were modeled after what we did with the science. So that's something that I'm learning is, you know, yes, we need to help children become better scientists, better writers, better readers, better speakers. Um, but we also need to help the teachers. They need support. And I see that as one of my biggest responsibilities is supporting teachers and helping them to create instruction that they feel really good about and they're excited um, to teach. Teaching's hard work, isn't it? Well, 
<laughs> it's the hardest. It's the hardest. And even myself, you know, I, I think I get going on something and then I start to see my, my own limitations in my thinking or, you know, the amount of time I spend on thinking through, I mean, I'm still messing up. And so I, I definitely can empathize. I still see myself as a classroom teacher. What are some ways, this is a little side question, but how do, how do we support teachers? How do we, you know, how do we get from, from research to scaffolding a teacher to provide better instruction in, in his or her classroom in order to help these, these students, you know, become better readers, writers, listeners, speakers, et cetera. Yeah. Um, I think it, it, it has to begin and it has, I think I've seen it happen when you're partnering with teachers. If, if I am simply staying in my office and doing my thing, I, I will progress, but I'm not, progressing in the same way that I will when I'm working with teachers. They ask me questions that I haven't considered. When I feel like we have a reciprocal relationship, sometimes I think people, because they don't understand research, tend to think that they don't have the knowledge they need to contribute or participate with research. And the opposite is true. I am always taught so much by the teachers I work with. So I think as researchers, it's on us to you know, become active participants and learners in the classroom right alongside the teachers. And some of my best work has always been when I've involved a teacher. And um, it was fascinating. I got a phone call just yesterday from a teacher in a district south of here, and she had left me a message. And so I called her back. She said she just had some questions about what the research was saying about literacy instruction. And I had meetings, and so I waited till the afternoon to call her back. And when I called her back, she said, oh my goodness, I can't believe you returned my call. And I said, why? And she said, well, I'm just a teacher in such and such district. And I just point blank said, don't ever say that. And I think that we have created this false um, gap between teaching in the classroom and researching at a university. And uh, so the more that we just engage with each other, and that's one of the exciting things I think about being an education researcher is that you're, you're tied forever to the classroom. And it's a beautiful arrangement, I think, when we are actually helping each other and asking good questions of each other. I think it helps the classroom and it def I can definitely say it helps the um, research as well. So the more we can do to just bridge that gap, I think is important. I think it also helps if we are engaged with districts and sharing what some of the research is saying. And, you know, so I try to do a lot of just free, you know, I don't get paid to do professional development or just things along those lines so that we can have this conversation going about research and education. Um, because both sides are needed. If there is, you know, if there are two sides, we need both of them. That was wonderful. Thank you. So we've, we've covered so much ground. Uh, Next Generation Science Standards, Common Core State Standards, reading, writing, speaking, listening, uh, disciplinary literacy. And so we, we obviously can't get quite too far into the weeds of this is what it might look like from, from day to day. But what would you recommend if, if there's a, a teacher that's, that's listening to this episode that is thinking, wow, that, that's something I would, I would like to do in my classroom. I would like to be able to integrate all of those things, um, but I don't know where to start. What, what advice would you might recommend to that teacher? Um, it's it, it's going to sound counterintuitive, but this is stuff that I had to do myself. And so I think it would be helpful to a classroom teacher. 
first of all, I think we have to become, if we're talking about writing instruction, we have to become writers. And so I just started incorporating, you know, whether it's journal writing, list making, lesson planning, really focusing on writing so that as a teacher, I can think about what, what do I need in order to do this? And so, for example, if I'm going to teach an opinion piece, what kinds of things am I stumbling on as I do that or informative explanatory? We have to start thinking like a learner. And oftentimes I think teachers are so overwhelmed and busy. We don't have time to actually do the things that we, we need our children to learn to do. And so I think just becoming a writer yourself. I also think we have to become a scientist or a social scientist or a photographer or you know anything that you could pull in that's related to the disciplines, an historian, a mathematician. We actually have to play the, that role because as soon as we take on that perspective, that's when the questions in our brain can't help but wonder and start to seek answers to those questions. Um, but we have to step away from just the routine of how we normally teach. And you know, from my own experience, it's not comfortable. I'm like, I got a ton of things to do. But when I took a notebook outside and thought I'm gonna be working with hundreds of kindergarten through second graders, I'm gonna take a walk and I'm just gonna take notes of the things that I notice and see and questions. And as soon as I put myself in that position of learner, oh, my ideas, my brain explodes with ideas. I just have so many things that we could start doing. So I think my biggest piece of advice was, would be to get inspired, to start becoming what, what you're hoping that your students will do. Um, and in that way, I think the creativity begins as well. Too often, I think we approach it from product or process. And somewhere I think the learner has to be in the middle of both of those. We definitely wanna teach students how to brainstorm their ideas, how to draft and edit. And then we also really want you know, this informative explanatory text, but there's this huge middle and that's where the creativity and the brain work and the inspiration and the individual child brings so much to that. And so I, I, I just feel like as teachers, we've got to get more inspired ourselves and step out of the teaching mode and become more of the learner using different lenses for whatever we're trying to teach. So it, it's hard because it takes time, but that to me is the excitement of teaching when I'm actually, I get excited about what I'm doing. It doesn't feel like, oh, I've got to go do, I've got to go teach this lesson. It's like, I can't wait to share these ideas and see what questions the kids are going to come up with. Um, to me, that's where the change starts happening. I don't own the knowledge. I don't, I'm not, I'm not imparting it, but we're creating it together. And I'm asking questions. Um, right alongside those kids or right alongside the teachers. We're asking questions so that our brains will be working on these ideas and these concepts. I think that's a great counterintuitive response. I, you know, I might add that if, if as teachers, a lot of what we're expected to do during the day is to, is to model, to model the things that good readers do, to model the things that a good writer does. And there's a whole different aspect to it. If you've been writing and you encounter some of those roadblocks like how do I organize a text to say what I want to say or you know the other different bottlenecks and anecdotally I'll say I I felt like I was becoming a better writing teacher when I you know entered my PhD program and was really expected to write some really rich meaty things and, and not that I was having my fourth graders do it to near the same level but I was able to help 
help model some of that so that they could they could incorporate some of those things in their writing. So I, I think that's a great, be the change you yeah. wish to see, right? <laughs> yeah, and it helps you understand why it might be a challenge for them, right? Like we're saying, just go write a story or go write. And in reality, you, there's a lot that has to take place before we can just pump something out. In your dissertation, you had to do a lot of research and a ton of thinking to weave these ideas together and contribute something new to the research. It's not, we're not just regurgitating information. And so we just wanna bring that whole process alive so that kids can see like, I oftentimes I would come to the teachers and say, I'm stuck on this part. And they would say, how about this? And that's what we want from our kids in the classroom too. I am stuck. Help, I, I am trying to write this story and I'm stuck. And even though I might know how to fix it, just the fact that I've created this invitation, I'm inviting them into the process. Um, to me, that's golden. That's where learning really happens because we're doing it together and I'm pulling them into it, right? Dr. Clark, thank you for joining us on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. This has been a great discussion. Uh, what would you say makes a great teacher? Um, a great teacher is a great learner. I think a great teacher is the host. What I mean by that is when I'm putting on a party, I'm creating invitations for people. And the more I can invite children or adults, if I'm teaching adults, into the process, the better teacher I'm becoming. Like, for example, I can tell kids all day long to eat an apple because it's good for them. Or I can take an apple and I can cut it up and set it on a plate and see what happens. And I think as teachers, we are constantly creating invitations, invitations to get creative, to be curious, to enjoy life, to get stuck and unstuck. And so to me, a good teacher is someone that's doesn't take their job too seriously, that just enjoys the fact that they're honored to be doing it in the first place. Wonderful. Dr. Sarah Clark, thank you for joining us on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Wow. Wasn't that such a good interview? I even, even going back through and re-listening to it, I am left with so many good takeaways and things to think about. Just briefly, here are my two cents on what we talked about. I'm almost sheepish to admit it, but even after reading her studies and being able to to talk with her, it, it I missed the mark with what these studies were really trying to say in preparation for our interview, in which I really approached the interview as uh, these are studies that are integrating science and writing instruction. And as it really unfolded quite nicely throughout the interview, that's really not what the studies were about. It was really about integrating science with literacy instruction, but literacy being defined as reading, writing, speaking, and listening. And uh, I really think Dr. Clark did a very nice job of helping us understand that we really can't isolate those very well. That if we're going to be focusing on, on writing instruction, the output, then we have to also be having input. In other words, we have to be building knowledge in order to be able to produce discourse about that knowledge, whether that's through the student speaking or through student writing. And um, I went back after our interview and I, I looked back at those studies and I realized, yeah, 
that that is the point that the that those researchers are trying to make i just missed it with my own whether it was it was lax reading or my own biases or what i thought the articles were going to say and not necessarily critically evaluating them for what they did indeed say which i think uh you know says a lot about you know speaks volumes for careful reading so that's my first thought is we really have to have all four of those at the same time or, or in sequence with one another, in tandem with one another, in order to really leverage the knowledge building, but also the, the literacy skill that our students need to be able to succeed and, and be, be, be great achievers. My second thought has to do with Dr. Clark's approach for conducting research in the classroom. Uh, she, she did a really good job of explaining that she partners with the teachers and they ask questions and they collaborate and they collect data and they evaluate that data. And that's sort of their process to, uh, that, that she uses with teachers in order to determine whether, whether what they're using is, is working or whether it's not working and how they might tweak it. And the, the classroom teacher brings to the table their expertise with the context, the students and the instruction side. And then she's also able to, Dr. Clark's able to bring expertise with the, the research and the design side. And together that can make for a really fruitful and productive relationship. And uh, what a neat opportunity for those teachers to be able to work with her. Now, not every teacher will be fortunate enough to work with a literacy researcher during the career, but that process that Dr. Clark was delineating really models what an effective PLC could be like where there's a, a context side where we understand the students, we understand the curriculum and, and sort of the, the design of, of the specific instructional setting where the, the instruction's happening at. But there could also be a, a research side of it where there's a, a text or book or a, a training of some sort where the teachers are trying to learn and grow more about what current research is saying best supports students' uh, reading and writing skill and achievement. So the, the PLC then can be able to sift through that and design instruction that's going to help support students. And that whether that instruction is effective or not is guided by the collection of data. So I really like Dr. Clark's approach because it's, it's not necessarily something special to research that only a researcher could do that. It's really sounds like to me, that's an effective PLC. And that's the kind of PLC that uh, I think teachers will find really rewarding where there's different components of it, of trying to understand best practice, trying to understand the specific context and collecting data to monitor whether specific uh, implementations of instruction are being effective or not. And so I would encourage you to think about how can I use my PLC time a little bit more effectively in order to help support my kiddos better. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I'm very excited to be back in the driver's seat. If you like this show or any of the other shows, feel free to share it with a colleague. Uh, that's how the show grows, is by folks sharing it with, with other folks that they think will appreciate it. So please reach out and uh, share it with someone that you think might enjoy it. Until next time, let's go and teach reading just a little bit better.